Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 17 in our Bibles this morning. Gospel of Luke chapter number 17. Jesus Christ is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem and Calvary. And uh, we are in the 17th chapter of Luke uh, for one more Sunday today. This is a cardinal doctrine of Christianity that we have been studying. The doctrine of the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. And as we have been looking at what Jesus Christ said about this amazing event, uh, we cannot uh, ignore the emphasis on judgment. You know, the pictures of the Bahamas this last week as a result of Dorian have been shocking. 185 miles per hour wind just kind of hovering down on those islands, parking there for 36 hours. The winds, the storm surge, the shocking pictures of devastation. But yet when we read of the devastation that is coming to our planet, we would have to say that our world has merely seen the tip of the iceberg when it comes to cataclysmic devastation. The pictures of the Bahamas are shocking to see communities flattened, to see the, the result of the power of those 185 mile per hour winds for 36 hours, to, to see the impact on those islands is shocking, but it pales in comparison when we read of the cataclysmic destruction and devastation that will not just come upon one small portion of the world, but will come upon the world in its entirety. Cataclysmic destruction. And so this morning, as we wrap up this, uh, this uh, teaching of Jesus Christ in chapter 17, we are face to face with the most pungent statement that Jesus Christ made when he made the analogy of vultures and corpses. And that's what we're looking at this morning. This is humanity's worst cataclysmic event in the entirety of the human race. This surpasses everything in the history of humanity. Now, we recognize we live in a secular world. Uh, America is, uh, is a, has become a secular country in many ways. And as a secular uh, culture, those who still believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ are mocked and ridiculed. Those who would have the audacity to believe a book that was written thousands of years ago and still believe that the claims made in that book are still going to come true and happen uh, is the cause for ridicule in today's world. I was um, reading a, a statement, and I just had it in front of me, and where did I put that statement? Here it is. This is a statement from a scoffer by the name of Dennis McKenzie. Dennis McKenzie said Paul himself showed that he was among those who waited for the imminent return of Christ. Yet as the history of that era clearly shows, all was for naught. No Messiah appeared. The New Testament repeatedly says the Messiah was to return in a very short time. 
Yet mankind has waited for nearly 2,000 years and nothing has occurred. By no stretch of the imagination can that be considered coming quickly. It is indeed unfortunate that millions of people still cling to the forlorn hope that somehow a Messiah will arise and extract them from their predicament. How many years? 2,000? 10,000? 100,000? How many years will it take for them to finally say, we can only conclude that we are the victims of a cruel hoax? Those are the words of Dennis McKenzie. Not unusual words from a secular source who mocks Christians who still look for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so it's good for us to remind ourselves that before the Bible was completed, before the last book of the Bible was written, God made a particular point in saying that there would arise scoffers who would mock those who believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. There will be mockers in the last days who will make fun of those who still believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back. And there in that passage in Second Peter chapter 3, the Bible predicts with perfect accuracy the reasoning of the atheistic evolutionist crowd that believes, in, uh, believes that, uh, that you can judge the future on the basis of the past, naturalism. The way it's always been is the way it's always going to be. And the Bible perfectly addresses their uh, opposition to the belief in the second coming of Christ and answers their accusations perfect, uh, perfectly. And so we know the Bible tells us to expect that when we talk of the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be some who will mock us and will laugh that we still believe in that teaching of the Word of God after 2,000 years since the Bible was completed. And yet we do believe it. We believe it because we believe God. We believe Jesus Christ. And we believe the answers that God gave to the skeptics in Second Peter 3. We looked at those a few couple of weeks ago. We still believe that God addressed it addressed the issue, gave the answers, we accept God's answers, and so we're still looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's going to come, and His coming produces His victory over a created world that rejected Him. The second coming of Jesus Christ will reveal Him to be the Messiah of Israel and will enthrone Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords on earth. And it's precise, and it's purposeful, and it's understandable. Anyone who can read plain English can read the New Testament and know that God says Jesus Christ is coming again and will perform the things that he promised to perform. He will come. He will set up his kingdom. He will rule this world. And this is not a minor theme in the Bible. This stretches throughout the Bible. It is the story of humanity at its greatest moment. It is Christ's high hour when Jesus shows up on planet Earth. Now, we've been looking from verse 20 down to the last verse. We're on the last verse this morning. We saw that Jesus first addressed the subject of the second coming of of his second coming to establish his kingdom, he addressed it to unsaved people who demanded of him that he tell them when he's coming. And he answered them and said, it's not even important to you that are unsaved, because until the kingdom of God comes inside of you through conversion, through a new birth experience, 
You won't have anything to do with God's kingdom on earth. So it's not it's a mute point until after you get saved. Then he turned to his disciples and he has given his disciples seven characteristics of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at the last of those seven characteristics this morning. We saw that the coming of Jesus Christ is desired by those who know him. And yet it's been delayed for 2,000 years. We saw that it is unexpected when it finally happens. And yet it will be universally visible and nobody will miss it. We learned that it will be revelatory in that the second coming of Jesus Christ will reveal the innermost heart of every person. No one will be able to hide behind a mask of hypocrisy and act like there's something different than what they really are. The second coming of Christ will reveal the reality of the heart of every human being alive on the place of the earth. And we saw last week that when that happens, the second coming of Christ will be divisive. It will divide families, families with, with two family members at night, one taken away in judgment and one left to enter the millennium, the, the, the kingdom. Two people out in the field working, one will be taken away in judgment, one will be left to enter the kingdom. Two people working in the kitchen, one will be taken away in judgment and one will remain on earth to enter into the kingdom. We saw the divisive nature of the second coming. How that Jesus in another passage talked about dividing people and he used the analogy of a shepherd dividing goats and sheep apart from each other. And Jesus Christ said that those who are going to be taken away in judgment will go to hell and those who are Saved will remain on earth to go into the kingdom with Jesus Christ. And so we've seen these six characteristics bringing us to a moment of shock. A moment of shock. The disciples that have been listening to Jesus tell about the conditions, the characteristics of his second coming, they're blown away. I mean, they had always viewed the second coming of Jesus Christ as being, you know, just this great, this great time and it's going to be a party and we're all going to celebrate and all this. And Jesus Christ has painted a picture that has, has some very difficult parts to, to the picture. And the disciples are aghast. And in our verse number 37, they, they look at Jesus and they say, where? Where is this going to happen? Where will this occur? Is it going to happen here in Israel? Is it going to be here in Jerusalem? Is it going to be in Egypt or, or Babylon? It, where, Lord? And then Jesus Christ gave a picture of an eagle. Now, the Bible uses eagles throughout the Old and New Testaments as illustrations of different things. And sometimes the use of an eagle as an illustration, illustrates something very positive. You know, like Isaiah 40. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Like that eagle that mounts up and just keeps on keeping on. God uses it to illustrate something positive. Or Exodus 19, verse 4, when God said, Ye have seen what I did Unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. He said, remember when Egypt had you in slavery? Remember the ten plagues? 
Remember what I did to Egypt to break their backs of military control and power over you and your slavery? You remember? And how that I swooped down like an eagle, like an eagle will bear its young under its wings. He said, I swooped down and I rescued you out of Egypt and I carried you unto myself. He uses the eagle in a very positive way to illustrate something very positive. But that's not what we're looking at here. In the Semitic languages, large birds were all lumped together and were spoken of by this word that's translated eagles. Eagles, as we know eagles, are uh, emblem of America, the stately, majestic, bald eagle. All the eagles were in that category of large birds, as were the vultures were in this category of large birds. And so when, the, when this word was used, it was used of a category of birds. Now, exactly which bird and exactly what the function of that, word, that bird would be would be uh, up to the context and, and how it was being used. In this particular case, the Bible is talking about a body and a bird. And Jesus, at this moment, spoke and used the word body as just a, a human body. But in the passage in Matthew that records Jesus a few months down the road, the, the, the week of his crucifixion, he used the same analogy, preaching this same subject a few months later. And in that passage, he didn't use the word body, he used the word corpse. And Matthew 24 records it, that where the corpse is, that's where the eagles or the large birds of prey will gather. What we have is Jesus Christ illustrating his second coming and giving us our seventh and final characteristic. His second coming will be shockingly destructive. Shockingly destructive. He speaks of his coming as a time of great judgment. He pictures world civilization at the completion of his coming as a rotting corpse being judged by God. Shockingly destructive is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want us to do for a few moments this morning is see the destruction that Jesus is illustrating. What is Jesus speaking of when he illustrates with this idea of a vulture eating a corpse on earth? Well, the book of Revelation is an amazing book, and I want us to think about the end of the tribulation period, its collapse of culture, its collapse of economics, its military collapse. And all that's left of the world is corpses to be devoured by vultures. And then the survivors enter into the kingdom of God. That's the picture that the Bible ends with, with God coming and destroying a world that has rejected God and takes the ones who got saved during the tribulation and survived to the end he takes them into his kingdom on earth. So we're going to take a glance at the book of Revelation. You've got, you see that you've got four pages. Whoa, four pages on your little worksheet this morning. 
And uh, I wanted to give you a, a uh, Revelation Simplified. People sometimes complain about the book of Revelation that it's hard to understand the book of Revelation. And so I, I want you to see Revelation Simplified and uh, an outline for your own personal future reading of the book of Revelation and study. I've got to give you just a little bit of insight into how this, uh, how this book of Revelation uh, unfolds. And we're going we're gonna to focus on the parts in green. Now, I put it in green so that you could find the parts in green. And so if you go to page number two on your little handout, look for what's in green. And I want you to understand the flow of the book of Revelation so that you can find in the book of Revelation what Jesus Christ is talking about with this illustration of a of vultures and corpses. You see on the top of page number two, Revelation has three parts. That's easy to understand. Past, present, and future. And the majority... In fact, could you go back a, a screen and uh, so people aren't trying to read that and understand that while I'm trying to give them the... the a little bit of, uh, of uh, explanation here before we look at that. Uh, Book of Revelation is past, present, and future. If you identify where the divisions are, that will help you a lot in the Book of Revelation. Uh, past, present, and future. And the majority of the Book of Revelation records the tribulation period. The future part of the Book of Revelation is the tribulation, the millennium, and eternity. Uh, the biggest part of that future, from chapters 6 through chapters 19, all focuses on the tribulation period. That's the period that Jesus Christ is talking about that concludes with his second coming. Now, jump down to the next little green uh, statement. Parts of chapters 6 to 19 are chronological and parts are parenthetical. This is probably the most important thing for you to get a hold of to be able to read the book of Revelation and follow the, the presentation of the book of Revelation. When you are looking in chapters 6 to 19, you're looking at the future on earth. And in those chapters that are basically chronological, then all of a sudden there's a big parenthesis. And if you don't recognize that parenthesis, then you still think you're reading chronologically. You can really play, play uh, havoc with your, with your mind. And so you've got to understand the difference between the chronology and the parenthetical explanations. Now let's go to that next screen. Let me show, you, uh, show that to you here uh, on, uh, on this screen. Okay. Here we have the future from, from here. To here is the future, chapter six to, to, to uh, chapter six to nineteen. The, what you need to understand is the chronology of the book of Revelation is basically seven what are called sealed judgments. The, the the book of Revelation was like a scroll rolled up, and it had seven uh, seven wax seals. You'd break a seal and unroll it and read, and then you'd break another seal. You'd kind of roll it up and put a seal, roll it up and put a seal. So you'd, you'd unroll it and break a seal, unroll it and break a seal, unroll it and break a seal. And, and so that's, that's the, uh, the picture of, of the reading of the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation uh, unfolds seven great judgments 
that God brings into the world. And each of those judgments are called a seal, the breaking of the seal, and then the announcing of that judgment. And so what we have is we have seven judgments, seven seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment ends the tribulation period. However, the seventh seal judgment is in reality the blowing of seven trumpets. And so you've got the seven trumpets of judgment. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Those seven trumpets are the seventh seal. So the seventh seal ends the tribulation period. But that seventh seal is the blowing or the announcing with a trumpet of seven rapid judgments. And the seventh trumpet blast announces seven angels with vials or bowls of the wrath of God, and they pour them out one right after another in rapid succession. So the seven bowl judgments are the seventh trumpet announcement. And the seven trumpet announcements are the seventh seal. Does that make sense? Now, that, that will help you immensely when you read through the book of Revelation to follow what God's Word is saying. So, the seventh seal is the end of the tribulation period. Now, there are within... Let's go ahead and jump to the next screen. There are... I'm sorry. Uh, just go ahead and, uh, and just jump to the main screen. Uh, not that one. Just to the, that one there. Let's park there for a few moments. Okay. So, the, we're, we're looking for the end of the tribulation. And I'm trying to help you to have a tool to help you find the places in Revelation that talks about the end of the tribulation. Because the end of the tribulation is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about vultures and corpses. This is the end of the tribulation period. Now, let's go in our Bibles back to the book of Revelation and read what Jesus Christ is talking about in his text this morning. Go to Revelation chapter number 10. Revelation chapter number 10. I like to read, and this is stated on your little worksheet, I like to read uh, any portion of the scriptures that I am reading that has parentheses, and you find that uh, often. I like to, when I come to a parentheses, ignore what's in the parentheses. I like to just set that aside and read what's before and after the parentheses without reading the parenthetical section. Once I understand the flow of the sentence or the paragraph or what God is saying, then I go back and look at the parentheses, and the parenthetical section gives me additional details about a subject that was introduced, and it gives me additional information. But I don't want to get absorbed in the additional details until I understand the flow of the whole thing. So I like to skip the parenthetical sections and read the, um, read the chronology first. And so we're going to come down to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, come down to verse number 6. This is the blowing of the seventh trumpet that announces the end of the tribulation period. Verse number 6. The Bible says, And swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, the things that are, there, that are, are therein are, the earth, the things that therein are, and the sea, the things which 
or therein, that there should be time no longer. Do you see that? Did you pick up on that? That's a trigger God gives you in your Bible. Time no longer. This is the end of the tribulation period. This is the end of it. Time no longer. Verse number seven. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound. This is the seventh trumpet. When he begins to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. Remember what the mystery is? We studied that earlier. The church age. The mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was not found in in the Old Testament. It was unrevealed. All of this is wrapped up. The mystery finished. He hath declared unto his servants the prophets. I'm sorry. Uh, let, me, let me go back. My mind jumped ahead to something that, uh, that, that really confuses. It is not the mystery of the church age. When he spoke of a mystery, he was speaking of details that hadn't been announced previously, but, that, but, but it's not the mystery of the church age. That's something different. I'm, I apologize for that. But he announces that the mystery of God should be finished, that he hath declared to his servants the prophets, and the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book, open it, and so forth. Now skip down to verse number, uh, uh, to, over to chapter 11, verse number 14. Chapter 11, verse 14, uh, the second woe is past, the third woe cometh quickly, and the seventh angel sounded, which is what was said in verse number 7 of the previous chapter, the seventh angel sounding. The seventh angel sounded, verse number 15, and there are great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the end of the tribulation period. Seventh trumpet sounds. This is it. There's time no longer. The tribulation period is ended. The kingdoms of this world are now the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's victorious. It's all over. Jesus Christ rules and reigns. Verse number 15 announces the end of the tribulation period. I'm, I'm looking at the little chronological statements once you take out the parentheses. Now, what happened at that blast of the seventh trumpet that was mentioned in chapter 10, verse 7, chapter 11, verse 15? What happened at that moment when that seventh trumpet blasted? Come down to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. By the way, uh, this would all be in the green on your very last page of your little handout. The very back page in green. Note that the seventh trumpet marks the end of the tribulation. Chapter 10 and chapter 11. And uh, Jesus wins. It's all over. Now we're jumping all the way down to the bottom of your last page in green. The battle of Armageddon. This is what happened when that seventh trumpet Blared out. Chapter 16, verse number 14. Are you ready for this? For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Notice at that seventh trumpet, God call is calling people from all over the world. Calling them to a battle, a final battle, a cataclysmic battle. It'll be a battle that's called that great day of God. Behold, Jesus said, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and see, and they see his shame. 
And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial. Okay, now we're at the seventh of the vial judgments, which were the seventh trumpet. And the final vial judgment is poured out. And verse number 17 says, it is done. Voices, thunders, lightnings, earthquake. And not since men were upon earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. A great the great city is divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This is the end of the tribulation. This is the seventh vial of the seventh trumpet of the seventh seal. This is the end of it all. And there is a fierceness of God's wrath. By the way, could I get you to turn back to chapter 14 in one of the parenthetical sections, verse number 14 of chapter 14. Verse number 14 says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud set the Son of Man, having the uh, head of golden crown, and, uh, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice, saying, Thrust in the sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And God uses the analogy of harvest time. And the, the nations of the world, the peoples of the earth, are ripe for the judgment of God. Their sin has pushed beyond the limits of what God will tolerate. And he pictures the earth as ripe. Verse number 18 says at the end of the verse, For her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. You see this picture. God says the world is so wicked. The people of the world are so wicked that their wickedness has passed God's tolerance, and she's ripe for judgment. And he says, as a harvester would go out in the grape harvest and take their pruning shears or their sickles, and they would bring in all of the harvest, and they would put all of the boughs of grapes into the great wine press, and they would crush the grapes to be able to pour out the juice of the grape. And God uses that as a picture of the pressing of the judgment of God that will pour out from the people their blood. Look at the next verse. Verse 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles. That's about five feet deep by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. That's 200 miles. I'm talking about the most cataclysmic event of all of humanity. I'm talking about a cataclysmic event whose horror goes beyond anything that man has ever experienced on the face of the earth. Jesus Christ said, where is it going to happen? Look where the corpses are. Where you find the corpses, you'll find vultures gathering from everywhere. To eat the flesh off the bones of the corpses. Wow, Jesus Christ, that's 
pretty graphic. Yeah, it's graphic. He's talking about a time when God's judgment will crush a world that hates him, a world that rejects him. Look at, let's see, did we read chapter 16, verse number 19? We did. Here's, here's a graphic now. Let's go to that next graphic if we could. Here's, here's the, um, the armies that will gather together. The armies that will gather together. You can go to various parts of the Bible, mainly Ezekiel and Revelation, and you can find descriptions throughout the Word of God regarding the gathering of the armies together for this great day of God, this great battle in which the, the, uh, the wrath of God is poured out onto the world. The Bible talks of the Antichrist army in the book of Daniel. It's the, the uh, ten nation confederacy. It's the Nebuchadnezzar's image. It's the ten toes that come back together, a ten nation confederacy that is most believe is probably uh, European in nature coming with the Antichrist leading them. There is a northern army that comes down from Russia. There's an eastern army that comes from China and India. And there's a southern army that comes from Egypt and the Arab nations to the south of Israel. The Bible describes a campaign of warfare that lasts three and a half years. This doesn't all happen in one day. It begins... In the middle of the tribulation period, when the Antichrist breaks his peace treaty with Israel and he defies Israel and everything breaks open. And then there's a vying of different parties in the world for political control. The Russians want to uh, destroy the Antichrist and get the, get the uh, possession of Israel with all of its wealth and its, and its uh, value. Uh, the, the Chinese, they, they won't have the Russians getting one up on them, so they come in with an army of 200 million people, the Bible describes, by number, 200 million. That's a huge army. In fact, God says he dries up the Euphrates River to give them a dry riverbed passageway to march across the world. This is, this is a campaign of three and a half years that culminates at the end of three and a half years with this great battle right in Jerusalem itself, the battle of Armageddon. Let's go to the next screen if we could, please. There are four places listed in the Bible regarding the final stage of the Armageddon warfare. There is the battle, there's the valley of Megiddo, there's the valley of Jehoshaphat, there's the city of Jerusalem, and there's Idumea or Edom. These are four places. You see them... Uh, See them also over here, Valley of Megiddo, Jehoshaphat, Jerusalem, Idumea. These are the four locations uh, that everything converges on at the end of this campaign of Armageddon. It is going to be a horrific, horrific day on planet Earth. For those who went to Israel uh, with us, here's a picture. In fact, here's two pictures I took. Uh, the top one. Let's see, the bottom one was our group when we were in uh, Israel. The top one was when I was with my son-in-law uh, this year. Uh, and so both of them were parallel um, pictures, panoramic pictures, standing on the top of Megiddo. And as we stood on Megiddo, 
And those are looking in two different directions, standing on Megiddo, the, the, the ancient tell of Megiddo where they're doing archaeological work, and looking out over the valley of Megiddo, or Armageddon. That's what the word Armageddon means. And looking out over Armageddon. It is the most... It is the battleground that has more wars fought on it than any other geography in the entire world to this day. More battles in the history of humanity have been fought on that field than any other place on the earth. When Napoleon stood there where we stood and looked over that massive valley, that's where he lost and he ended his uh, trying to march across the world. And as he stood there looking over the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, Napoleon's biographers recorded that he said, this is the greatest battlefield in all the world. He saw the mountains. He saw, he compared it to a great stadium with the mountains as the elevated places for people to watch. And the battleground, he said, is large enough for the Armies of the world to maneuver and fight. Little did Napoleon know he was speaking prophetically of exactly what God said in his word would occur. Now, this, this next screen shows uh, John Colantoni looking over the battle. I just thought I'd throw John in there. And uh, there's John looking out over the valley of Megiddo and uh, thinking about that great battle. Here, this next screen, this is uh, Suresh and Sheshmika. They're, they're on a chariot. They're getting ready to ride down into the battlefield and uh, have some fun down in the valley of Megiddo. And uh, some, uh, some little pictures of... Uh, of the Valley of Megiddo. Let's go ahead and, and jump past that now. This is going to be a horrific day. When we think of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and when they demanded of Jesus, Jesus, tell us, when is this going to happen? Jesus said to them, you don't want to know. Because until the kingdom of God is inside of you, nothing else matters. Until you've been born again, nothing else matters. Until you've been saved... Nothing else matters. You need to get saved. And those of you who are saved, Jesus turned to his disciples and he told them of the horrific nature of this horrible coming that is in front of the world. If you want to read a little bit more about it, read about it in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation as he describes the people crying out, the merchants crying out, the shipmasters crying out, those who deal in music, orchestras crying out. Everything stopped. No more weddings. No more music. No more commerce. No more trade. No more traffic. No more of anything. Because God's crushing a world that has rejected him. And you read it in Revelation 17 and 18 in graphic language of a world utterly crushed under the hand of a holy God because of their absolute rejection of him and everything he stands for. It is a day of unparalleled catechism. Uh, uh, well, that too. But uh, whatever that other word I meant to say, cataclysmic uh, judgment. 
It is a day of horrific judgment on the face of the earth. And then come over to, let me end in chapter 19. I'll skip what I was going to read in, in 17 and 18. Come over to 19. And here's, here's the end of it all as it climaxes in verse number 11. 19, verse number 11. I saw heaven opened, and upon a white horse he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head as many crowns. And he has a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture... And on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and them that sit on them. And the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken with him and the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. And with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Where is this going to happen? It's going to happen in Israel. Where is this going to happen? Where you find the corpses. And the vultures eating the flesh of the armies and the kings of the world in their final last stand trying to destroy Jesus Christ and God Almighty and his nation, the nation of Israel. That's where it's going to happen. And it's going to be horrific. And it's going to be cataclysmic on the face of the earth. Jesus Christ ended this teaching by pointing to the fact that it's going to be a time of great judgment. But you know something? There's good news in all this. You know what the good news is? That those who believe in Christ, those who are saved, escape the judgment of God because the judgment of God are against the enemies of God. And so you read on in chapter 20 and 21 and 22 and the book of Revelation ends with the amazing picture of God's people with God in heaven for all of eternity enjoying the presence of our God but you know Jesus is a realist he doesn't sugarcoat things that are hard he doesn't set them aside and pretend like they're not there he tells the truth and he offers hope to those that will believe in him and in this passage of Scripture, and in the book of Revelation, he painted a horrific picture of the reality 
that stands in front of the population of the world. And he holds out the offer of forgiveness. If you're born again, if you get saved, if the kingdom of God comes inside of you and your heart is ruled by God, then you can enjoy Him for all of eternity. And it's only those who are the enemies of God who reject His gracious gift of salvation that will face the cataclysmic judgment that will come from God that will cause this world to be crushed under His judgment. Are you saved here today? Well, if you're saved, you know, you can just kind of, you look at that, these passages of Scripture and you get kind of tense and you, oh, this is horrible, horrible, horrible. This is, Jesus ends His sermon by saying, I'll tell you, where, wherever you find all the dead bodies and the vultures eating them. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard. But then you breathe a sigh of relief because you know Jesus Christ has changed your heart and life, made you a follower of God, and you have none of that judgment to expect. You look for the peace and the joy of God for all of eternity. But if you're here today and you've never been saved, dear friend, God wants to save you so that you can enjoy His peace, His love, His joy, and never experience the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And He holds out that offer to each of us.